And it's live. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Good to see you again for our second podcast. I'm good. Are you going to say that every time? <laughs> well, and it's live. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I might do. I might do. Maybe that's our thing. Or maybe it's really annoying. We'll, we'll let the, the community decide. It's good that you mentioned community because when we recorded our first podcast, we joked the whole way through it that this would be something that only we and our families would listen to. But amazingly, we shared the podcast on Reddit and it, it got some pickup, didn't it? Hell yeah, loads of people listened. Uh, shout out to everyone who found us from there. I ironically uh, asked my dad, have you listened to it? And he was like, uh, no, I tried, but I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't, even, we didn't even manage to get your family involved. But we have a yes. lot of users, which is, which is awesome. Uh, so welcome back to the podcast, guys. Yeah, um, I'd like to give a special shout out to our favorite Reddit user, Banana Liver. So Banana Liver gave us possibly my favorite review of the first episode. Banana Liver said, TLDR, great topic, terrible podcast. We went on to have a bit of a, an argument because Banana Liver took issue with certain facts. I, I shouldn't, <laughs> I, I, I got sucked in. And amazingly, we emerged from this as friends uh, after sort of debating. Perhaps even it. lovers. Well, I wouldn't go that far. but. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the beautiful thing was we actually, we emerged from it as friends and someone below said, wow, what a, what a nice exchange to read on Reddit. Are you sure it wasn't steeped in sarcasm? You know what, that might, <laughs> that might have been exactly what happened, who yeah. knows. Well, um, uh, one, one note for everyone to consider. We thought it would be nice to have people have an opportunity to kind of have their say on the actual content of the, the podcast, asking questions, and we can kind of evolve our own understanding over time. So we made a Facebook page. It is brand new, I think it's got like, this is really like you, me, and our parents liking it. I don't think I've even liked it yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless you're listening to this a year or two from now, at which point we're competing with Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but on that note, Jake, following the comments uh, that we saw on Reddit, and, and are there any points or thoughts on the previous episode that you want to add to what we've said there? Yes, actually. Uh, there, is, there was one quite good comment that we didn't really touch on, or I guess, I guess it was kind of implied by some of the stuff we were talking about, which was this issue of capital flight. So Tom Jones on LinkedIn, actually, not on Reddit, he got in contact with us to suggest, obviously, if you, if you were to try and, and, and practically impose any way of abolishing billionaires, you'd have this risk of them just moving or relocating to tax havens or, or, or exploiting other loopholes. And it, I mean, it's true. We, we, we didn't really... It's true, yeah. It's kind of practically utilitarian thing there, right? It's not unusual for your capital to run away. How often do you reckon people make, like, make a Tom Jones-related joke to him? To Tom Jones? Yeah, yeah. I, can, I can imagine it happens. It's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we, so I, I think one of the things we said last time was this show was all about debating issues from a moral theoretical perspective. We don't really intend to get into the practical side of things, but it, it, sometimes it's interesting to have that kind of discussion for fun. But if you want to listen to a podcast about public policy, this is probably not the pod for you. So cool. I think let's move on and, and kick off this second episode of, uh, of the show. So very sure. quickly, this is the morality of everyday things. On this podcast, we consider issues or questions that touch our everyday lives, such as in today's episode, is it okay to punch a Nazi? So, Ant, do you want to unpack that question for us? 
Sure. So, uh, yeah, and for anyone who's, who's new to this second episode, it's important, I think, in philosophy to, to carefully specify what you think is a question is asking and trying to answer it. And particularly when you have what we call everyday questions, there's a lot of implicit baggage that people might not agree on. So it's worth it's worth putting out there. So firstly, let's let's abstract away from the specifics. The, the fact that it's about Nazis is, is kind of incidental. Um, and actually, I think uh, it just it, it, it's a talking point that serves to inflame both sides. And that just causes more confusion. Uh, that, that's part of the reason why it's so interesting. Yeah, I think it's um, what makes it quite a good question, right? Yeah, exactly. It's basically about doing wrongs to people who we don't agree with, who we think are bad people. So that's kind of the micro question. Um, there's also, I think, a macro question here, which is around political systems. So it's less about deciding, you know, is this individual act right? It's more kind of nudging towards a question of how do liberal democracies deal with existential threats? Should there be limits to liberal ideals and freedoms such as free speech, tolerance, uh, the idea that we should debate our differences rather than actually have fights? And, and then I guess ultimately, if we deem it necessary to silence, oppress, you know, remove the freedoms uh, or certain freedoms of certain political opponents, can we still say that we're truly a liberal democracy? Does, does it matter? Again, this, is a, this macro one is a big question. We'll come to it in another episode. Uh, I think we'll do probably an episode about no platforming. I think for today, we'll keep it a little tighter. We'll focus on the question around punching a Nazi as opposed to you know, stopping Nazis. The micro question is going to be around that. I don't think it's controversial to say that generally, as a rule, violence is bad. The question is, can we be justified in breaking a moral rule, such as committing violence, in particular, if it's towards someone who has done or intends to do bad things? So we'll, we'll kind of break that question even a little more when we go to the philosophical context. But that's, that's really what I think this question is, is pointing at. Yeah, Jake, do you want to give us a little bit of, of real world context? Why is this a question that we picked? So I think this issue became a talking point looking at you know, recent movements that we've seen, particularly in America, with the sort of growth of the far right. Uh, I, I saw literally here in the in the UK, for those who don't know, we're, we're based in London, um, there were far right protests this Saturday. That's exactly true. There were, there were far right, like sort of football hooligans all showed up marching in London over the weekend. So if anything, yeah, it's, it's become... Charlton possibly... FC! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's become more and more relevant than ever. Uh, now, I just wanted to say, when, when we first sat down to research this question, we, we picked the question because we thought it was, it was interesting and somewhat controversial uh, and, and was a good title for a debate. I literally Googled, is it okay to punch a Nazi just to see what the internet threw back at me? And, and it's interesting, it turns out there was an actual Nazi who got punched in the USA in 2017. Mm -hmm. And it had sparked all this debate around, was that right? Was it good? And, and people felt quite strongly on both sides. Now, the bloke in question is a guy called Richard Spencer. He's an active member of the far right. I think he actually, he, he, he coined the term the alt-right uh, and he was giving a video interview in 2017 uh, and he's talking on camera and these guys just kind of run in from off camera, punch him in the face and, and carry on running. And it's, it's interesting because when you watch it, I suppose uh, on one level it has that sort of you've been framed style comedy about it that's just a bit amusing mm -hmm. regardless of your political views. And, uh, but, but I think, I think perhaps more relevantly, a lot of people felt this sense of catharsis, like, ah, this guy's a bad person, he's a Nazi, see him punched in the face, nice. But then, obviously, at the same time, you've got a lot of people saying violence isn't justified. As funny as you might think it was, it was still wrong. So that's a 
that interesting specific example of, of, of this very question. What, what I think is also interesting, and we will come to this later, is the fact that Spencer, although he holds quite right-wing views, doesn't identify himself as a Nazi. There's even a video of him arguing this point. So, so there's the context around punching an actual Nazi. Fair. I think one point that it may not be clear to people why this is relevant, but that is also quite relevant, I think, recently Trump labeled Antifa as terrorists. Can you tell us a little bit quickly about Antifa? So Antifa is, is supposed to stand for anti-fascism, right, or anti-fascists. Historically, Antifa groups have basically been militant anti-establishment groups. And, you know, so now it basically applies to any violent left-wing or extreme left-wing group. I, I think, to be fair, Trump's characterization of it is pretty unfair. Most evidence suggests that there isn't some big organized secret network of Antifa. Instead, it, it's just kind of disparate groups or, or even disparate actors who don't even necessarily... I, I think the, the big difference between that and Nazis is that like Nazis have kind of a defined belief system, whereas Antifa is basically any belief system or group has several potential aims, including genuinely being anti-fascist um, or just being anti-establishment. So basically, if you're kind of left and kind of seem a little militant, then the, the label can just be applied to you. Um, and arguably, arguably, that's too loose, the same way that some people who don't self-identify as Nazis got Nazi labeled on them. Interesting. And, and the relevance of Antifa, I suppose, does come back to this bigger philosophical question that we're driving at, which is when are specific, well, when are specific bad actions justified against people we disagree with or deem to be bad people? So it's yeah. not necessarily about the right wing Nazi context, it is, it's about the general, when can we justify bad things? I think, I think the interesting thing is that, or, or the reason this is a good talking point for our audience, because I think a lot of people will come into this being like, yeah, Nazis are bad, that's it, right? But I think it's really important for us to, to accept that we're making some value judgments there, and that actually there are some people on the other end of the political spectrum who will feel very similarly about groups like Antifa. Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of important to bear in mind. So this reads, leads really nicely into the philosophical context. Uh, we settled on that question, can we be justified in breaking a conventional moral rule, such as committing violence, uh, in particular if it's towards someone who has done or intends to do bad things? So let's take that first part before the in particular, can we be justified in breaking a, a moral rule? I think the interesting thing is that in this specific case, uh, the, the Nazi question, punching a Nazi, it, isn't, it doesn't seem to be a question about you know, what happens when two moral rules clash, it seems to be more about the difference between doing what's right and doing what's good. Uh, and we'll, we'll kind of explain how, how those can be two separate things in the, in the uh, upcoming context. One thing to note, I think it's, it's totally a, a given that, you know, in the context of self-defense, yes, of course you can defend yourself and you can punch back. But that, that means there pretty clearly are sometimes you can break the rules. Uh, but I think that, yeah, the real question here is about right and good. Jake, what do you think the second part of the question is, is kind of pointing at? So the second part of the question is, can we be justified in doing something bad, in particular, if it's towards someone who has done or intends to do something bad? And that seems to be more around moral desert, right? So do yeah. bad people deserve bad things to happen to them? And I guess we'll come to that much later at the end. Yeah, okay, so let's, let's, let's look at that difference between what's good and what's right to start with. Um, I think super simply, and this might not feel very clear to start with, but some examples are highlighted. What's right tends to be about obeying uh, moral rules and moral duties. And we'll also discuss you know, different moral frameworks for deriving those rules. 
And then what's good is about achieving, achieving normative outcomes that we perceive to be positive, right? You'd intuitively feel like these should closely line up, but it's actually the work of some of modern philosophy's greatest thinkers to try and derive ways that we can determine what's right without describing what's good. Uh, and actually famous people who've done that include our dude Rawls from, from last episode. Oh, we, we love John Rawls. Hell yeah. So bringing it back to the main question, is punching a Nazi okay? I think it's interesting because for a lot of people, it, it, on an intuitive level, I think the conflict you feel is because it falls into a category of good, but not right. Violence is wrong, but opposing Nazis is good. Yeah, it's a bit like if a headmaster called you in because your son punched someone, but your son explained that they were standing up to a bully. You'd probably, on some level, agree, yeah, they break the rules. It's, it's not good to, to punch people. But unless you're an extreme pacifist, you'd probably respect the quality of character that led to their decision. And therefore, you, you, I mean, you might even feel proud of them. You, you'd feel like they've done a good thing, even if it wasn't necessarily the right thing. Yeah, I think I don't condone violence. I wouldn't teach my children violence. But if they used it in the right situation, I think I'd feel proud of them. Now, to, to kind of highlight again the difference between um, you know, good and right, here's, here's kind of a counterexample examples of right but not good so so what we discussed there was examples of good but not right here's right but not good um if your partner were to ask you you know we're saying oh i'm feeling really down i think i've gained a ton of weight and you were simply to answer yes <laughs> uh, you you would be right in that you had not lied but it, it may arguably not be good because you hurt their feelings and, and weren't considerate a, a white like surprised yeah a white lie or or at least something more tactful you know change the subject <laughs> uh, <laughs> another example of this would be you know doing the right thing for the wrong reasons right mm -hmm. so yeah if you imagine a celebrity doing a charity appeal you're doing you're, you're raising money for charity great we could say that's the right thing if it's motivated by this idea of virtue signaling promoting your own profile you don't really care that much about helping then it's still the right thing but for the wrong reasons doesn't make it good. Yeah, so I think one of the most important distinctions that um, is important to kind of put here, and this is the whole problem with the, with the re relationship between good and right, is that good is a, is a normative thing, right? And that's, that's, all, that's fine when people have, you know, what you would consider to be a normal idea of, you know, what's normatively good. But the truth is that because it's basically down to your opinion of what's good, it's quite hard to argue with someone who just doesn't agree with your worldview uh, and can't be swayed to your normative position. I think, Jake, you, you said, you know, this fairly famous phrase in the notes that we were talking about, every terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. You know, in, in their own world, they are doing what's good. Yeah, exactly that. There, there was a CIA agent who said that a lot of extreme Islamist groups really enjoyed Star Wars because from the perspective of the empire, the rebels are terrorists, but they're obviously yeah. they're obviously I, the Hollywood heroes. Yeah, I've seen I've seen I've seen this interview. Um, a CIA agent, an informant or whatever, is explaining the mindset of terrorists, and they were saying how they loved Star Wars because, in their eyes, they're the rebels. The U.S. has like their big aircraft carriers and stuff. They're like the Death Stars. You can certainly see parallels between Trump and Emperor Palpatine or whatever his name is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely in the skincare. So generally, then, we accept we might even value pluralism within our societies. But I think to bring it back to the question we've asked at the heart of this, Nazism is an example of where this is taken to an extreme and it really seems to push our tolerance 
So, and I mean, are we really tolerant if we're only tolerating stuff that's easy? Because obviously in a Nazi's eyes, punching a Nazi is a bad thing. And it's probably going to be quite tough to persuade them to feel differently about that. Mm. And I, I mean, we can reason about normative beliefs, but at some level, I guess, like you said, we have to accept the, that the argument does boil down to some axioms which just simply feel right or wrong to us, probably based on our specific context. Uh, also, mm. a normative conception of what's good is not just open to genuine disagreement, but abuse. So if dictators simply label their opponents as bad, then as you say, it just opens up a can of worms there uh, about the real morality. Uh, and I guess that's why some philosophers seek to keep what's good out of their pursuit of what's right. Yeah, I guess because you, you should have both the freedom to decide what's good or bad and also because of that like liability to be abused. Cool. Um, so let's think about some moral frameworks that, that connect good and right, shall we? <laughs> let's do that. So okay. there are three main types of moral frameworks, uh, and I guess... We'll, we'll discuss them in this order. There's virtue ethics, there's consequentialism, and there's deontology. And yeah. do you want to kick us off with virtue ethics? Sure. So, so virtue ethics is really from the ancient Greeks, um, and it's what's described as a teleological theory. Uh, so in a teleological theory, we define an end, and all moral decisions are, are just means to that end. That, you know, you're just making a decision that most reaches the desired goal that we want. It's just a path on the way there. Uh, in the case of virtue ethics, the end that we're striving for is to live consistently with a set of virtues that we define as you know, part of living the quote unquote good life, uh, which is the, the end of being a person. There's something kind of intuitively appealing about that, isn't there? Yeah, so, so I think in that bullying example we gave, right, I think that's actually a good example of virtue ethics, right? That you feel like by standing up to a bully, your child has, has displayed virtuous activity and and that's something good in itself they've been like like courage like self-esteem exactly so and i think the important thing to point out there is that those virtues are ends in themselves right the difficult thing is deciding what virtues are normatively good um the ancient greeks are very good at writing socratic monologues where they just basically have people saying hmm yes hmm yes to all of their, <laughs> <laughs> to all of their assumptions and questions and then it feels like their ideas have been subjected to scrutiny, but forget that it's all a dialogue written by one person. So he's um, really just putting words in the mouth of his opponents. And <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I think that's pretty much why this theory fell out of favor since ancient Greece. It's only recently that people are kind of like re-examining it as a, as a really valid kind of theory. Cool. Okay, so That so, takes us to consequentialism. Yeah. So consequentialism is... Uh, obviously, again, it's a moral framework for decision-making based on maximizing an end. So it's also teleological. Now, in consequential theories, the rightness of an action is entirely determined by its consequences, rather than its adherence to any virtues. The end these consequences might promote depends on your specific moral theory. Uh, the most prominent example is utilitarianism, which seeks to make the decision where the consequences maximize the overall pleasure, net the pain. So for utilitarian, the definition of what's right is simply what maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain, irrespective of what our personal conceptions of good or bad are. So like what we enjoy or what we dislike. So when you're punching a Nazi, the displeasure, the pain the Nazi feels is just as valued to the equation as the pleasure you might get from the act or the pleasure you might get from future notions of suppressing Nazism. Sorry, one thing that you said there that I didn't say explicitly in the virtue ethics part is in virtue ethics, something is right insofar as it is consistent with certain virtues 
and you said that in in this case something is right insofar as it maximizes some end in the case of utilitarianism pleasure net pain okay so how how do you think that we could uh, virtues still feel kind of important right how do you think that we could incorporate virtues into a consequential moral framework so i suppose the way you could look at it there is that virtues are a means to an end like displaying courage is a means to achieving good consequences i.e you've stood up to a bully so so in the in the example of the bullying thing instead of saying i'm you know proud of my child because they were courageous or, or, or it was good because my child was courageous you would say it's good because my child was courageous and generally being courageous is a good way to maximize utility in the midterm or, or would you not say specifically in that case that the consequence there of the child having put an end to the bullying and, and, and achieved the sort of consequence where they can live with more self-esteem in the school, something like that, would, yes. would that in fact be, yes. be the sort yeah, of yeah. ultimate so, good? So you, you could say that in like a, in the specific sense. I'm just saying like as a heuristic, you'd be yeah. glad they acted courageously because being courageous tends to achieve that thing. Not cool. because being courageous is a good thing in and of itself. Um, nice. And for the same reason, actually, so John Stuart Mill argued about moral heuristic. He basically managed to say that by optimizing utility in the midterm, you can actually incorporate virtues, but only because they are means to an end of optimizing utility. I think that you mentioned the term midterm. I do think that's really important because I think the time horizon that you assess consequences over can really change your, your view on, on, on the actions and, and, and what you would do. If you take a really short-term view of utilitarianism, you'd only really be looking at punching a Nazi in respect of like a really quick outcome of the Nazi feels pain and maybe you feel some kind of savage pleasure in the action. But what you want to do is assess it over a much longer time horizon and think, you know, what does this do to this particular Nazi's beliefs over the midterm and, and, and indeed yeah. Nazism as a whole. And that's, I think, where it gets more interesting, yeah. but also, I suppose, more murky because at that point, yes, it is hard to know what the consequences of our future actions will always be. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think this is, this is one of the difficulties of utilitarianism. So they, they try to separate good, good and bad and right and wrong by just saying, it doesn't matter what you think is good or bad. It's just about netting up pleasure and pain. I think the problem is, you know, it, either it's not that useful a framework if you take that super micro, like super short-term approach, or you take that midterm approach and suddenly we're just allowing our biases of what we think is good and bad to kind of bias how it is that we, you know, one, think what's good in the midterm, and two, add up people's pleasures and pains. It's just too hard to remove the, the biases from that, right? So I think I might think in the midterm, suppressing Nazism is, is the best way to promote utility in the midterm. The Nazi might think actually promoting my cause is the best way to promote utility in the midterm. How, how do we resolve who's right in that matter? So one guy who would have an opinion on this is Immanuel Kant, which brings us through to our third philosophy. Ooh, 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 yes. So in the modern day, they've taken a, a slightly different approach. Immanuel Kant basically read utilitarianism and he was like, this is stupid. I'm going to reason. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he basically says, I'm going to reason to what's right without needing to consider or, or define what's good or bad or trying to measure up utilities in some way that's not, not really possible. So this one, unlike the previous two, is not teleological. So that means the decision making is not like there is something I want to achieve and this decision is just a step on the way there. In deontological theories, the decisions are the ends in themselves. That's it. You, 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 make a, you, you follow a moral rule 
because you follow moral rules. So instead of using good to intuit what's right, to remove good and bad from, from this kind of distinction of what's right, rather than seeing moral decisions in these ends, as I said, moral decisions become ends in themselves. So how does Kant reason his way to moral rules? He basically has two conditions that need to be followed to form a moral rule. One, it should be good if you universally applied it. And then the second thing is that he was very focused on the ends, not the means to ends thing. Uh, we should respect that people are rational creatures and that we owe them respect as rational creatures. So they should be ends in themselves in all of your decisions. Let's, let's quickly take the example of violence uh, applied through Kant's framework. So mm. what, how, how, how would Kant reach the conclusion that nonviolence is, uh, in his words, it's a categorical imperative, right? But yeah. for, the, for the sake of the podcast, nonviolence is a good rule to follow. You'd say it's a good rule because if everyone practiced it, it creates a world where nobody's violent to each other. Yeah, I think, I think we could all agree that's an outcome that we like. I shouldn't say the word outcome, that makes it sound consequentialist. Um, but nonviolence universally is a good thing. Secondly, if we are nonviolent people, then yeah, it's, it's showing people the appropriate respect, it's treating them as ends in and of themselves. If we're violent people because we intend to achieve things, that would be treating people as means and not ends. So you can see how Kant's framework actually, it works quite well in the, in the respect of, uh, of the subject of violence. Cool. So let's, let's talk through an example just to kind of show the three different schools and how they might approach a specific problem. Yeah, let's, let's imagine you saw someone drowning, right? Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's reasonable that you could save them. They're not like, you know, in a riptide in a, in a huge, powerful ocean. They're just in a pool. You'd have to jump in and pull them out. Like, you're, you're, there's practically no risk to you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think all schools would likely agree that you should save them, that you, in fact, have a... a you know, a moral duty to save them, but it's for different reasons in each case. Sure. In the case of virtue ethics, it would be because saving them is in keeping with virtues which you would agree are, are good, such as courage or kindness. In the case of consequentialism, it would be purely because saving them minimizes their pain, maximizes their pleasure, uh, and you also have some pleasure in feeling that you've done a good deed, so that's why you should save them. In the case of deontology, saving them would be because it obeys some moral rule, right? And I, there's a few that could apply that I think are reasonable. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. So you would expect him to save you if the rules are reversed. Uh, and it certainly respects his humanity to save him um, or her. Or if the cost is minimal and the benefit to another is large, you have a duty to help someone. There are some um, limits to that, but again, you know, a semi-reasonable rule. So they all have this, this is an example where they all have the same outcome, but different reasons for getting there, which explains how they determine what is right. So Jake, I think we're, we're pretty well equipped here. So let's, let's bring it all back to the question, why might it be okay to punch a Nazi? Or more specifically, can we be justified in breaking a conventional rule, in particular if it's towards someone who has done or intends to do bad things? Why might that be the case? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, let's dive right into this. So there's a few conditions, I think, under which it would be okay to punch a Nazi. Uh, and what I'll try and do here is, I mean, I'll, I'll save my opinion for later, but what I'll do here is I'll, I'll try and be quite clear about if you feel this and, and you want to believe and take this point of view, these are the assumptions that you need to hold in order to feel justified in that stance. Now, to be fair, one, as we've already mentioned, that's pretty universal, under a, a, a condition of self-defense, yeah, if, if, if a Nazi is attacking you and you punch them back, I think almost any moral framework would deem you justified in, in that action. I suppose an absolute pacifist might deem it wrong to punch back, in which case they'd have to like run really fast or, or something else. But that's cool. That's a nice, easy one. So let's forget about that and put that to one side. Now, I think you, you need a teleological theory really to support the belief that it might be okay. I think it's very difficult to manipulate deontology into any kind of form that does uh, support punching a Nazi or, or, or taking an actively bad action. So basically what you're saying there is because we're asking someone to do something typically wrong, it seems that the only way that that could consistently be okay is if we're considering our actions as means to ends, right? I think uh, so. Yeah, if we're saying that an action is typically wrong, then there's no way that a theory that defines actions as ends in themselves could somehow overcome that hurdle and, and suddenly label this wrong action as the right one. Yeah, I think that's true. So let's, let's look a little bit further ahead beyond the sort of immediate pain or pleasure experienced in the specific punch. If you've got a world where you believe it's okay for people to punch Nazis, then a good that might come of this is that it creates a world in which Nazism struggles to exist. And obviously, while that might be bad for Nazis, you could take a sort of bigger picture utility and think, you know what, Nazism is such an aggressive belief system. If we can suppress it and stamp it out, that's great for midterm utility for society at large. You can believe that that end justifies the means, then on some level, you're actually okay with that position of actively being violent. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, basically what we're saying there is Nazism is so wrong that you feel you have a duty to actively stop it. And the consequence of making life so uncomfortable takes precedence over any other negative consequences that might come about from your temporary violence. Okay. So, so basically in the case of, you know, consequentialism or specifically, I, I guess we'll focus on utilitarianism, it can be that punching the Nazis is actually the right way to maximize utility in the midterm. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of virtue ethics, it could be that punching them is, is um, in keeping with certain virtues, such as courage, you know, whatever it is that you choose. So it, it's, it's conceivably coherent to, to hold those views, right? And I suppose, I mean, I have some degree of sympathy with someone who says, you know what, in this day and age, Nazism is such a repugnant belief system to hold that it's actually, it's not enough just to tolerate them. I'm, I'm fed up, I'm frustrated with having to be sort of tolerant of views that are so racist and unacceptable. 
I feel like I have a duty to actively stop them. Yeah, I think it's, okay. it's a strong position to hold, but I, 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 can, I can see where someone like that is coming from. Yeah, yeah, I think, so it's interesting. We, we talked about, kind of, earlier we talked about how, you know, a, a midterm utilitarian perspective might incorporate some ideas such as virtues and moral rules only as means to the end of maximizing utility. It's the same with norms, right? So, so yeah, it's an assumption that the, the benefit outweighs any damage to norms, which I think it's fair to say violence might occur. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it could even be that we want to create a norm, but it's so unacceptable to hold such, uh, such vehemently, uh, vehemently, vehemently, whatever, unacceptable <laughs> view. One other thing I would just add to that is I think if you want to hold this view, you have to be comfortable with one other assumption, which is that mm. liberal democracy has limits and does not need to be tolerant of views that pose a threat to it. Uh, now, yeah. I, I don't want to stray into that macro question that we talked about before, but I think yeah. you do need to be comfortable with that assumption in order to feel comfortable yeah. with punching Nazis. I think that is actually the perfect point at which to segue into the other half of the argument. So those are, those are pretty clear, simple assumptions you need to make. Uh, but there are some very easy challenges to levy against them. So, and why would it be wrong to punch a Nazi? Okay, so we've talked about the kind of teleological ones. Now it's the deontological ones, i.e. following moral rules, things are right in themselves. It's pretty clear cut. Uh, Kant's whole perspective is that we use the term categorical imperative. If we form a categorical imperative, then it is, as the name suggests, categorical. There is no circumstance where it doesn't apply. So if we agree that, violence is wrong or that you have a moral duty not to commit violence then there is no exception to that rule including punching nazis cool so if you're taking a deontological perspective what you're saying is a deontologist would probably never come to the conclusion that it would be okay they'd always say you know what violence is wrong in and of itself therefore punching nazis is always wrong yeah but i think it's worth pointing out here this this situation we're describing is one of the biggest criticisms of Kant and his, um, and his kind of moral framework. How does it deal with these extremes? So do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about one of the main examples? Yeah, so uh, this is called the, uh, the axe murderer thought experiment. Uh, and someone said to Kant, okay, what about this? It's late at night, you hear a knock on your door, you open it and there's a deranged looking guy standing there holding an axe, there's like blood dripping off it. And he says, hello, Mr. Kant. I'd like you to tell me the location of your wife and children so I can murder them brutally. <laughs> Kant would be caught in a little bit of a bind here because as we said earlier, one of his categorical imperatives was that you must never lie. Lying is morally wrong. So Kant can't lie to this guy. What would Kant do in that circumstance? In his view, I th his answer basically was still wrong. Can't lie to him. Um, he doesn't rule out other actions, so you could just not answer and just close the door. Granted, he'd probably then use the axe on the door. Um, <laughs> you could um, tell a misleading truth. And actually, he famously did this himself within his lifetime. Um, he, was, he was once asked by the king to stop lecturing for some reason, and he promised, I will stop lecturing so long as king blah, blah, blah is on the throne. He was aware that the king was old and unwell, so... <laughs> As soon as the king died, he continued lecturing. And in his view, that wasn't breaking his promise or it wasn't lying. But yeah, this is, this is basically one of the key critiques towards Kant. How does he deal with these kind of extreme situations? Any rule that you make, it seems the case that you could envisage some ridiculous circumstance where it might actually be not just reasonable, 
but right to break that rule. Yeah. So that's 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 a really interesting criticism of Kant. Now now yep. let's uh, let's take a look at how a consequentialist might come to the conclusion that it would be wrong to punch a Nazi. And I think this is where things get really interesting because we've seen already how consequentialism could be used to justify the action, but the same framework can be used to come to the opposite conclusion. And I guess again, this is where the fact that it's normative is quite important because you you have to make these kind of value judgments and weigh them up and, and decide what to you takes precedence. So I think specifically, if you punch a Nazi, it erodes that norm of civility that we think is really important to society. And if you lose it, it could be extremely harmful to society. Mm. So although you might agree that stopping Nazism is important and punching them is a way of achieving that end, you have to then level with the fact that by punching them, you are undermining those tenets of liberal democracy and tolerance and all these good things. And yeah. that has its own potentially quite negative midterm consequences that you have to reckon with. So I think, I think like we mentioned in the beginning, it's important to note that Richard Spencer didn't label himself a Nazi. So I think it, it's interesting the parallels between him being punched and now Trump labeling people Antifa and l legally enshrining the fact that they can have violence perpetrated against them. Uh, essentially kind of a, a, a legislative uh, expression of the fact that uh, he thinks it's right or that it's justified to be violent against them. I think basically it's, it's, it's very hard to find a moral leg to stand on to then say to people like him, that's unacceptable, that's not the way that we behave in society. If, you know, two or three years ago, you were arguing that we should be punching Nazis. And I think a nice historical example of this might be uh, the case of Mahatma Gandhi, right? Yeah. So I think the pacifism that someone like Gandhi exemplified really well kind of encapsulates his point, right? Like the reason that his point was so effective was because he was a pacifist, right? So there's that famous scene where they're going up and they're getting hit by the guards, right? By not hitting back, they managed to maintain this kind of moral high ground and, you know, also maintain this norm of that's completely unacceptable behavior. In fact, it's, it's the contrast with that norm that makes the fact that they were being hit so unacceptable and embarrassing to the government. And I think one of the things that really struck me when I was looking up Richard Spencer uh, was this fact that in debating whether or not he should have been punched, because it was such a, it's such an emotive topic, it kind of forced this dichotomy that I think is a bit of a, it's a bit of a false contrast. Like the internet made it out as if, you know, you're either punching Nazis or you're doing nothing, you know? Yeah. And, and, or, or, and, or even worse, being a Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I don't think, I, I don't think that's the choice that we face. It's not like, you know, we go through life thinking, all right, there's a Nazi, I've got to punch him, otherwise I'm Nazi sympathizer. Oh my <laughs> God, I have, I have a duty to go and punch that man. Exactly. I think the really, in reality, the choice we face is, is much broader and there's so many different ways we can go about undermining the movement of Nazism that don't involve violence. Um, you know, like just through, through the democratic process, through counter protests. Social stigma. Social stigma, exactly. Uh, uh, we're not limited in our choice to sort of violence or being completely passive and doing nothing. I think that's a really important point to yeah. make at this time. Fair. Also, actually, so one thing that maybe we should have mentioned earlier in the consequentialist argument, but this is relevant on both sides, is that because consequentialism is extremely contingent, it always depends on the specific outcomes of specific circumstances, I guess in a sense, it's not great at answering a general question 
that's near the near the edge of mm. right or wrong like is it okay to punch a nazi because it's just it's so contingent on the specific circumstances of each individual punching right yeah how hard are you going to punch them how much of a nazi are they how much public attention do you reckon this will have how likely is this individual nazi to change their view because of the fact that you punch them how much might it incite people around them so so say you're at, say you're at a big protest and you walked up and punched a nazi and it turned the protest into a riot. I think most people would agree, under pretty much any framework, that's bad. Yeah, it's true. It, it, it's so contextual, which I suppose it, it, that leads quite interestingly into the concept of moral desert, which we promised to discuss at the beginning of the podcast, right? Yes. So I think most of the arguments up to this point either assumed or, or were perhaps biased by the kind of innate normative feeling that that the the kind of the nazis who we're calling bad deserve to be punished right um you know bad people deserve bad things and maybe that's kind of biased our moral calculus in, in some of the virtue ethics and some of the consequentialist arguments but i suppose the, the question is do bad people deserve bad things purely because they deserve them or only insofar as it helps achieve some end of maximizing utility or improving your 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 virtues so to give, a, to give a kind of somewhat ridiculous example, can you punch a secret Nazi? So imagine there's, you know, there's some, some old dude in your neighborhood, uh, Fritz. Yeah, he, he's old, <laughs> he keeps to himself, right? And one day you're walking past and you, you peer into his mirror and you're like, damn, this guy has a lot of Nazi memorabilia. Oh my God, Fritz is a Nazi. You've worked it out, okay? But Fritz, <laughs> Fritz, is, you know, Fritz is minding his own business. He, he's kind of old, he's you know, world weary. He's not trying to spread his view. You know, if you didn't peer into his private space, you wouldn't know he was a Nazi. First of all, let's imagine that you could sneak into Fritz's house and punch him and say, this is for being a Nazi. Would that be okay? And then secondly, what if you snuck into his house, punched him, and didn't even say it was because he was a Nazi? You just mm -hmm. randomly punched him. Um, you know, that kind of touches on that point of, is it means to an end? letting him know or, or trying to prevent Nazism? Or is it because bad people deserve bad things, right? Yeah. Because in that second case, in that second case, if it's purely because bad people deserve bad things, you don't need to explain to him that it's because he's a Nazi, you can just punch him. I think most people would agree that obviously it is not acceptable, actually probably in either circumstance. So that's you know, another clear example of just because someone's a Nazi doesn't mean it's okay to punch them. I think that's fair. Uh, and I mean, yeah. There's also one final point that's definitely worth making is what if bad people don't deserve bad things? I suppose there's that slightly primal sense that all of us have uh, around sort of revenge or, or, or rectifying sort of past wrongs. Um, but perhaps the correct uh, either virtue ethics or consequentialist response would be not to attack, but to, to nurture someone who's, you know, they, they're, they're, they're not a bad person intrinsically. They've just strayed from the flock. They're, they're yeah, just a, they're just—they're making a mistake. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it kind of comes to your, comes back to your your fundamental worldview on people, right? Like, are people fundamentally good, and when they're bad, it's you know they're making mistakes, or are some people fundamentally evil? I, I guess that's kind of the, the big question there. To give kind of a practical perspective, I think a really great example is is the Portuguese response to drug drug issues, drug crimes. Mm. Um, so Portugal decriminalized drug abuse. So they basically stopped seeing it as a, as a, as a bad thing or as, as a crime and started seeing those people as people who needed help. Started seeing it as a social or, or health issue. And they've had 
tons of success. You know, there's tons of TED Talks or whatever you can watch on the matter. Uh, tons of research you can kind of just Google, find for yourself. But the point is, what if, what if instead of seeing these extreme political groups as, uh, as evil people, what if actually the most effective way to, one, display our virtue as kind of just and charitable people, uh, and two, maximize the midterm utility, is actually, rather than punching them, to try and talk to them, understand them, bring them around in a, in a fair and rational way, and that doesn't undermine your norm of civility. Admittedly, that's not very useful in the context of something like a protest. I guess this really, this really kind of appeals to what we're saying about maybe the, the, you know, the, the punching or not punching is, is just adhering to a false dichotomy. And I suppose in, in the case of something like utilitarianism or virtue ethics, it acknowledges that a spectrum of choices of actions exists and the, the right action is the one that maximizes it. I guess now is probably a good time to, to bring this argument to a conclusion. And this is a, a nice chance for us to weigh in with our own personal opinions. We've tried to, <laughs> I mean, we've tried to stay somewhat neutral on the issue and, and discuss the arguments from both sides. Um, we've probably let our, our, our personal opinions seep through and somewhat bias what we've discussed. And hey, mm. that's just the way things go. Deal tell with us, it. <laughs> <laughs> deal with it, exactly. Yeah. Um, tell us, tell us. Where you've, you've seen all the arguments, where, where do you sit at the moment on this matter? I personally probably subscribe to more of a midterm utilitarian sort of philosophy. So my perspective is, can it be, can you be justified in sometimes doing bad things? You know, conventionally bad things? Absolutely. Like moral heuristics are heuristics, not rules. They're only heuristics because they tend to maximize utility. There will be times where they don't. But because I'm maximizing midterm, it's also really important to consider uh, the importance of norms and stuff like that. So in this specific question, punching Nazis, I actually think that the damage to the norm of civility and undermining your own point is, is more costly than the benefit of suppressing Nazism. I, I, that's not to say I don't think you should suppress Nazism. I think that there are many ways that you can do that that don't involve eroding that norm of civility which is you know really important to a liberal democracy it, it, it's basically it's basically giving people license to say as long as you have a just midterm out uh, like aim based on your normative perceptions you can be justified in being violent and you know what happens you know what happens when the nazi takes that exact position against you well, it won't surprise you to hear that I completely agree with all of that. <laughs> and yeah, I think for exactly the same reason, being, being sort of practical in this, uh, in this specific question, yeah, I think I, it's not a question of punching or not punching. There are so many other things we can do that help us suppress uh, Nazism, which I think we both agree is a value that we, we feel strongly about. And it's, it's not just about punching. Although I think where it is interesting is that Although in this specific circumstance, the Nazi question, the answer is no. In the general question, can you be justified in doing bad things against people who are either conventionally bad or intentionally bad things? I think we'd probably say the answer is, is yes, in the right circumstances. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's definitely possible in, in some circumstances. We do mm. not subscribe to deontology where the answer would, would basically be no, you follow rules because they are rules. And it's, it's interesting because I, I can see, I can totally see the appeal of deontology. I can see why it sort of took root because it, it, it does remove that, the, the sort of murkiness of always having to evaluate things in context and the fact that consequences can multiply and become more and more confusing 
but yeah. I think it's it's almost too simplistic. To, it's too inflexible to just say this is a rule and it's a rule that we must always follow. That being said, yeah. I, I think pacifism in, in, in almost, well, in most circumstances is, is a pretty good line to take. Nice. Okay. Well, let us know what you guys think. Send us, send us a little comment when we post it on our Facebook thing. You know, we'll post it on Reddit. People can comment there. Jake, what is coming up next week? Uh, just before we do that, uh, I wanted to make time for a couple of listeners' comments. We Please. had some at the beginning. There's one more uh, that I wanted to bring up because this was a consistent theme across the comments. What was up with that annoying music that <laughs> ran, the <whole> way, <laughs> ran the whole way through the podcast? I'll, I'll, I'll give that question to you, Anne, because you're our creator. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I thought it sounded kind of nice. Um, and long story short, but like, you know, we're not, we're not editing pros. So uh, as you'll probably have noticed for this one, we're just going to have an intro, have an outro. And we won't have noise while we talk. So, the, you know, the, the people have spoken. And I want to maximize utility, so I will do as they say. So, Jake, what's coming up in this coming week? Okay. So, for our next podcast, we thought we'd tackle the very topical question of, is it wrong to not share hashtag Blackout Tuesday? I think this will be a really interesting question, particularly because we'll look at that issue that's been raised as, as a kind of maxim throughout the campaign of, it's not enough just not to be racist, you have to be anti-racist, which leads us really interestingly into, into the question of moral duties. Uh, and there's yeah. loads to talk about there, so that, should be, that yeah. should be a really good podcast. Absolutely, and I think also we, we'll start to touch on that, we'll come back to that question that we mentioned here today, which was, what about doing the right thing for the wrong reasons? Totally, all right. Uh, so with all that said and done, thanks everyone yeah. for tuning in. You know, we're a new podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please do follow, save, download, whatever it is in your podcast uh, player. It is very, very helpful to us genuinely. Uh, it lets the, the, the product, podcast servers know that this is a good piece of content and helps other people find out about it. And please do like the Facebook page uh, and interact with us. We're, we're happy to answer any questions. No, please do. We, we, I mean, one of our intentions here really, we're, we're not in the business of trying to tell you how to think. Uh, we just love debating things. We're, we're interested in morality and philosophy generally. Uh, we'd love to get into a discussion with you guys about how you feel about the issues that we're talking about. So, so definitely, uh, definitely talk to us. Awesome. Cool, guys. Thanks very much and see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you.